Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the George Poo Show. Uh, we took a nice three-week break <laughs> just to prepare the best content and strategies for the podcast. And really excited to kick up this new era of the show with you guys today, as usual, with us, you know, Matt and Soham. How's everything with your work and life recently? Lots happening in, in my space recently. There's been a lot of controversy, like in Bitcoin lately. So we'll we'll get into that. And Soham, what do you have? For me, it's just been like really busy at work so far. But I'm interested to hear a bit more about the controversies. We've got NFTs coming to Bitcoin. And so everyone's kind of been up in arms about that. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, like what is an NFT first off? Mm -hmm. NFT is an image that is put on a blockchain. People can pay for it, right? So it's, you know, it's supposed to be a unique place on the blockchain where that image lives and people can pay money for it. And during the last bull market, people were paying millions of dollars for these images that you can right click and save. <laughs> yeah, that was my biggest problem with it. Like how, why are you buying something that's on the cloud. I think is is it original or is it can you just create something that's like similar to like uh, you know like popular photographs and you just like save it have multiple duplicates of that same image on the antique. You can absolutely. Well, I think one of the purposes that the artists claim was this this is an ability for an artist to be able to like monetize their work in the digital yeah. space more effectively. Um, but part of the problem there is you can just right click and save it. You can upload it to the same blockchain or you can upload it to a different blockchain. One of the things that was kind of fortunate was this, at least that Bitcoiners felt in the Bitcoin space, this wasn't really possible. Or you could always upload images to mm -hmm. Bitcoin in general or some type of data, but there wasn't kind of this prominent idea of the transferability of images, essentially, in the form of an NFT. So what, what does an NFT stand for? NFT stands for non-fungible token. So what is a fungible token? A fungible token is like digital USD, right? So if I send you know money from my bank account to yours and then you send it to George, then... You're not going to look at it and say, oh, it's from Matt. I can trace that. And so this is more or less valuable, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what fungible means. Non-fungible means that it's basically, uh, there are differences between them. So and a good example of this, would like like an art piece, uh, is obviously like non-fungible because there's only one Mona Lisa in the world, yeah. for mm -hmm. example. Yeah. What exists here with NFTs coming to Bitcoin is now, for the first time, you could always put images on the Bitcoin blockchain. But this is the first time that you can actually transfer them. Someone came up with a way to be able to actually figure out exactly on the Bitcoin blockchain where each Bitcoin is stored, essentially. And then you can use that in order to enable transferability of it. What's recently happened is this has resulted in a significant amount of data being put onto the Bitcoin blockchain, mm -hmm. which is bloating it significantly. We had, mm -hmm. we had a block a couple of days ago where, um, so the maximum size of the Bitcoin block is four megabytes right now. And I think it was like 3.92 megabytes of that was an image, <laughs> right? Which is insane. Okay. This becomes like a big problem because one of the issues with Bitcoin right now is obviously scalability. There's not enough space on the Bitcoin chain for everyone to have a Bitcoin, to have a transaction, to have mm -hmm. a private key. And now that problem is getting worse now that we have NFTs come to the space and those are starting to use up uh, an increasing amount of block space. So, you know, instead of it being a situation where we're keeping the block small and everyone can run their own node, now we're running into a situation where, you know, by 2032, the size of the Bitcoin blockchain is going to be 2.5 terabytes, mm -hmm. which is very concerning. I don't know where this leads. There's a lot of talk about is this a feature or a bug, right? When you're a programmer and you write code, you expect that code to be used a certain way. Mm -hmm. And in this is instance, um, an edge, in my opinion, an edge case was found, right? Where you figured out how to take advantage of certain elements in the code to be mm -hmm. able to be able to basically you've you've so you basically be able, you've been able to find like certain elements in the code that allows you to basically take advantage of certain features of Bitcoin to put NFTs on there. And so now the question is, is this a feature or is this a bug? 
And I think that's that's really what's up for debate. Yeah. And before we go any further, like explain to I, I guess I'm curious about why Bitcoin, the blockchain being 2.9 TB is an issue. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So key characteristics of Bitcoin and one of the kind of founding principles is don't trust verify. So mm. anything that occurs on the chain itself, I should be able to verify what's occurring. If you want to build a, a system uh, where fraud doesn't occur, you know, if you don't want fraud to occur, build a system where fraud cannot occur, right? So you should be able to verify each piece of it. And one of the nice things is you, I can go directly from the latest Bitcoin block. I can go all the way back to the, the first like transaction that ever occurred and I can validate all of them. And so that's why the concept of uh, being able to run your own. So what is a full node? A full node is simply the, being able to run the entire, downloading the entire history of the entire Bitcoin blockchain since Genesis since 2009 and being able to validate all of those and then also continuously validate transactions as they come in. And so the importance of this is if it becomes too difficult to be able to do that, then your average person isn't going to be running their own full node. And a good example of this is Ethereum where there isn't a block size limit and your average person is no longer able to uh, to run their own full archive node essentially. And so your average person doesn't run their own node at home and they rely on kind of these centralized providers to be able to get access to blockchain data, which makes it much more centralized. So in order to keep it decentralized, you wanna keep the block sizes in general small enough such that technology is able to advance fast enough to keep up with the increasing the increasing block sizes. Okay. So the worry here is, okay, so say, say tomorrow, we increase the block size to 16 megabytes. And then suddenly the size of the Bitcoin blockchain quadruples in the next couple of years. Yeah. Well, now your average person isn't able to do it because now it's very expensive to buy a bunch of, you know, several terabyte hard drives and then run that at home. Mm -hmm. But we hope like the hope is once it hits 2.5 terabytes, which is what's estimated by 2032, mm -hmm. that the cost of, of those you know hard drives will be low enough such that it's still reasonable to be able to run your own full node. So it's always this balance between technological advance, basically. And scaling Bitcoin at the same time and making sure that there's, you know, that people are able to be onboarded. But so that's essentially the, the debate. Yeah, I guess like how much of that does, does it matter for like the NFT part to actually pick up? Like, let's just say like no one even cares about the fact that yeah, like your Bitcoin can do that. Would that would the storage need to increase? Because like the NFT. Uh, wait, can you repeat that? So like as in like assume that even though like now has the capability to do it. If no one really cares to do it anymore, because like mm -hmm. the NFT market itself is kind of like simmered down a lot, mm -hmm. like would that still increase the store just because like has capability, or it's only if it's the use case of it starts going? It's only if it's used, yeah, right. So, so it's also a it's interesting. It's also a social aspect, yeah. right? So there's a, there's certain Bitcoiners out there that are pushing, hey, you know, don't do this. This is a sin, you know, <laughs> you know, in the Bitcoin world, which is which is kind of funny, you know. We're dealing with code, but yeah, if people don't use it, then yeah. it's not really an issue. It's if people use it, because I think like before it was just like you were able to put images on the blockchain, but there wasn't really any incentive to do that because you couldn't transfer ownership, mm -hmm. right? You couldn't transfer ownership to someone else. But now that you can transfer ownership, you've created a marketplace, yeah. right? And now that you've got a marketplace in place, now it becomes much more easier for like much more justified for people to say, hey, if I can put this amount of data on the blockchain, well, then I can go sell that for one Bitcoin, got right? It. And there's a lot more incentive to do that now. So I think that's the main concern. NFTs have simmered down dramatically in this bear market, mm -hmm. but obviously we're, we're kind of in the middle of the bear market, moving, moving towards probably a bull market in maybe uh, 2015. And 
if this is one of the features that is there in that bull market, like I could see a future where we see a, a significant increase in the amount of NFTs being created over the next two years as we move into that bull market. And we have crazy, crazy fees on the base layer of, of Bitcoin that, that gets created. That'd be interesting because I know like uh, like in terms of like traditionally, like, you know, how like NFTs kind of were the digital version of like, like Mona Lisa and all these like art pieces. Yeah. A lot of it was for like that tax loss harvesting and things like that, where you kind of just like try to write down taxes. So mm-hmm. that could be kind of like a use case in that. Tax harvesting <laughs> is a use case of NFTs. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but, so, so yeah, but see, my perspective is I'm, I'm running a full node at home. So I, well, I have to download your images because <laughs> you're doing tax, right? So, so it's like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> what does it mean like moving forward for the Bitcoin community? Like, is there any like proposal to stop it? But because I can't, I guess you can't really stop it. So what is it going to be like? So there was, hmm, it's interesting because now, uh, so there was two elements that enabled this. There was uh, the upgrade to Bitcoin called SegWit, which was done back in 2017, okay. which essentially increased the block size limit from one megabyte to four megabytes. Okay. And then there was another change, which was Taproot, which I can't remember if it was last year or the year before. And essentially what it did is it removed the limits on the uh, transaction data that can be included in each transaction that goes through. So the combination, uh, oh, oh, and by the way, it, it also, SegWit also decreased the cost of putting that on-chain data by 75%. So you've got basically a decrease in the cost of being able to put this data on, and you've increased the limits that allows for people now to put this data on-chain. And so with that in place now, now people are talking about, oh, we should reverse Taproot. Okay, well, that doesn't solve it because you can still do it with SegWit. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to reverse Taproot and you're going to reverse SegWit? Well, that, that doesn't seem like a, a good solution. And the other thing, too, is now there's a discussion happening that, uh, oh, you know, the Bitcoin core, the Bitcoin maximalists want censorship because people find that some Bitcoiners were talking about, oh, well, if we just get the miners to censor this transaction or don't allow this garbage in there, then it won't go through. And that's cause for them to say, oh, Bitcoiners, I think is not the right way to look at it. It's simply like Bitcoin's code is intended for a specific purpose. And there was an edge case found in that code. Mm-hmm. And now it's being used for something else. So there was already a proposal by Luke, Luke Dash Jr., which is one of the Bitcoin core devs. His initial thing was to put filters. So he created like just some example code filters for filtering out basically NFT data or like kind of data being pushed to the to the stack of Bitcoin. Okay. But now there's like people are talking about, oh, you know, should we should we undo basically the witness, uh, basically the discount that exists for that data? Mm-hmm. And should we put limits in place for the amount of like data that can be put on chain? So those are some of the discussions that are happening right now. Honestly, everything is up in the air. Like there's a lot of like fighting in between the two, the, the two groups that are pro essentially uh, NFTs on Bitcoin and against NFTs on Bitcoin. And I mean, this this is just going to be another history in Bitcoin. It's going to be another war, essentially, is, is the way mm-hmm. I see it. How, how do you make those proposals, by the way? Like, Because I, I know the original author of Bitcoin, he's not here to make those changes. How, do, how are those changes implemented and loaded for? That is a huge can of worms. <laughs> so that's a question of like Bitcoin governance, right? So how is Bitcoin governance done? How do changes get into Bitcoin? There's no kind of core person that determines when these changes should occur. Uh, so if you look at other chains, like, you know, Ethereum, for example, they have the Ethereum Foundation and 
basically the Ethereum Foundation, uh, Vitalik says, hey, this change should go through. That change usually goes through and they can make hard forks. And usually everyone is kind of aligned on that because there's mm-hmm. one person to look towards. Right. You could see that as a feature or you could see that as a very large bug because that means that you kind of have central control that can change yeah. the underlying chain. So you don't have that in Bitcoin. But that, what that means is that there's a lot of um, contention when it comes to introducing new changes because you need to have a large amount of consensus from a large number of people. So a good example of that was like generally the way that these proposals get made is there's some type of author, some type of code that's created. And then that gets put up and that doesn't mean it goes through, right? The code is written for it, but that doesn't mean it's going to be pushed through. You need to have a ton of reviews that occur of that code. And then the entire community needs to discuss it for months and months and months and months and months to find all the possible problems, remove any possible problems with it. And then even when you have a change that everybody agrees on, they usually don't agree on how to activate it. <laughs> right. So so even with the most recent one, which is Taproot, everyone kind of agreed on the set of changes that were being introduced. There was Peter Woolley, who wrote the, who was the author of the, the Taproot um, code changes. And uh, everyone agreed on the code changes that were being made, but they were disagreeing on how it should be activated. I don't think Bitcoin governance has been figured out. I think we're still experimenting with different things to figure out how to do this. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do you basically make changes to a system that is supposed to have no central control? Right. Yeah. And there's there's no really good way to do that. And no one's going to be happy with the end result. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen uh, with, with the next one or how we're, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate around, like, how we should do this moving forward. I don't think there's a good answer. How's the implication of this to the broader, like, uh, crypto Web3 community? Like, are people now saying, like, Ethereum might be a better alternative or you don't see that happening? Well, I think there is likely a lot of folks from... Like Bitcoiners are seeing that there's a lot of folks from kind of altcoin world or from Web3 that are now, you know, that might be coming over to Bitcoin and they might not be happy about that. <laughs> um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. If feature or bug, whatever you want to call it, like it stays within Bitcoin, then I think we're going to see a lot of folks that were in the NFT marketplace in Ethereum during the bull market there, you know, might come over to Bitcoin and start doing stuff here which obviously bloats the chain. There's a lot of problems with that. So I think that's been the influence from the rest of the community. But other than that, like there, there hasn't really been much. Yeah. Maybe we can kind of start with uh, the next part about like the blockchain. About um, scaling or? Um, about Nosha, right? Nostra. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Have you guys heard about Nostra actually? Like it's a, it's a basically a de- decentralized Twitter clone in essence. So Nostra has come out. If you guys know Twitter, where do your tweets actually lie? They lie in a database. Yeah. But what's really cool about Nostra is the idea of creating kind of a, dis- I guess not decentralized, but a distributed kind of alternative to Twitter that allows for all of the tweets that you create, or as they're called events, okay. to be a protocol, essentially. So the idea is you can have a protocol that has all these relays that relays these events, and then you have interfaces that can be built on top of this. Yeah. So we've recently had, if, if you guys know, there's an app called Damus, D-A-M-U-S, recently got on the App Store three days ago. 156 downloads in the last three days, which is huge. It's essentially censorship resistant, right? Because it's built on top of an underlying protocol that is Mm -hmm. censorship resistant. Whenever you connect to the app, it connects to four different relays that relays all of the uh, tweets or events that are going back and forth. And so I think this is really huge to see that there's there's now finally an alternative to Twitter that is a protocol that is actually taking off. And Jack Dorsey actually like put like money towards it. He put he funded it with Bitcoin. And so it's kind of interesting to see like the founder of one of the founders of Twitter like actually putting money towards like an alternative. Is there someone that can edit the protocol itself for like in this kind of censorship and stuff like that? Or is it like completely de like censorized? Yeah, well, well, I think it's on a, like a relay by relay basis, right? So whoever is running a relay, they can choose whatever they want to do with that relay. So they could choose to put a censorship in there or try to filter out certain words. 
But then at the end of the day, you know, if people don't want censorship, then they can just connect to a different relay. And so it's, it's really nice because instead of you being reliant on one source and that one source being able to censor or not, you're connected to multiple different sources. So you could imagine, say something like Infowars, they're banned on every platform under the sun. And you could even have them banned in like on Nostra, right? Three out of the four relays, they banned them. But there's the one that you can connect to and you can still get content. Got it. So so that is protecting free speech in a way yeah. that you can actually say things. And, and I guess it's protected by like the disinterest protocol, right? Exactly. But I guess the question is like, how does that pass through like Apple's App Store <laughs> review guidelines? Basically? Yeah, well, the guy, the guy put the... So it was interesting because the protocol itself doesn't need to go through the guidelines, but the iOS app built on top of it does. And so the guy who was creating the Damas app, he went through the review process probably like six times. Huh. Because <laughs> they kept rejecting them again and again. Because they're like, oh, well, you need to have a way to be able to like ban people or to be able to censor certain things. He's like, that's, con- that's opposite to what this whole protocol is about, right? Mm-hmm. So what he ended up doing was he made uh, proposals or I think he wrote code to the underlying protocol to allow for people to be able to like ban certain people or be able to kind of, if they on their individual feed, they don't want to see certain information, okay. then they can they can stop that from showing up so they can filter that out. I think that was the compromise that they, he made with, with Apple. It was also banned in China. So the CCP, <laughs> CCP removed it from the iOS app store. So obviously, you know, it's not everywhere in the world. But even if you're in China, like mm-hmm. as long as you can get access to a, like a web interface, like you can still access Nostra. I guess the one thing that's kind of like uh, a consumer, does that kind of mean that you'd get like that self-confirming bias of like everyone's kind of picking their own relay based on like what's allowed in that relay itself? Like like everyone that's like very like right wing would go like the way you only watch Fox News, the way you only watch. So is that something that can happen from like something like this or no? I think what's more likely to happen is there'd be echo chambers from following, which is the same thing that yeah, happens in exactly. traditional. So it's probably not like so much at the relay level because the majority of relays, at least right now, are probably not going to be are not censoring anything. Okay. Um, so everything's allowed, but it's likely that you know if you start having folks follow certain people, you're going to have an echo chamber just like you have in traditional social media. So right. But I guess what it does is it protects the data uh, security in terms of like like we had this discussion about if Twitter goes out of bankruptcy, if it goes out of business, like mm-hmm. where will the underlying data right be? And mm-hmm. I think we talked about a couple episodes ago. Like someone was concerned about like the data being lost if Twitter is going out of bankruptcy. I, I guess it doesn't wouldn't happen in this case. Your data is stored there forever. As long as like, there are people running the protocols. Exactly. Well, it's it's run by like the different relays. So each of the relays has a copy of all of the events that they're kind of relaying back and forth. And okay. so even if one relay goes down, you have three others, Okay. which is really, really nice. One of the weird things about it is you can't really upload images to Nostra. You actually, what you do is you upload your image to like IMG... Uh, Gur or whatever. Yeah, uh, I'm Gur or whatever. I'm Gur, yeah, 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 whatever it's called. <laughs> and you upload it there and then you post and it has like uh, it kind of embedded within Nostra. Uh, I see. I and so, it. and then so it's unlikely. So, okay, if obviously I'm Gur like brings, takes it down, then your image is being censored by them. But you could just host that image on your own website just and link that and embed it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And so there's no, not really that worry about that part being censored. Like you can find ways around it. So, okay. So like, where do you think the, the, the words, like the biggest differences it has from like Twitter users? Because I guess adoption is like a huge thing, right? Like how are people adopting it right now? I guess it's early like uh, Web3 enthusiasts. There hasn't been so much Web3 in it. It's been more focused on uh, Bitcoin Lightning actually. Okay. has been in- integrated into it, which is really phenomenal to see because essentially you can go on the app, you can create a Lightning invoice, right? And then you can pay it. And then the payment goes through instantly, right? So it's like, actually Edward Snowden like recently got on Nostra and he was talking about it. He's like, wow. This is magical internet money. I can't believe this, right? Like this is this is how like things are supposed to be built, right? So there's beautiful, beautiful integration that's been built like in with like Bitcoin Lightning Network. That's where the primary like 
thing is going to be. Like you can tip people for this. You can put a lightning invoice rate in the event that you mm-hmm. post. So, I mean, we'll see what happens. It's become very, very popular in Hong Kong recently, which right. shows that, I mean, obviously censorship is very important to them. Yeah. And so to have a way to have encrypted chat as yeah. well as a way to push events out that are, you know, not being censored. I think that's that's really huge and really cool. Yeah. And then I guess like one question, like I know one feature of Twitter that's kind of important is when you see somebody that said something like you kind of like, you can like message them like directly yourself and like have the comment. Is there like some kind of a feature like that? Yeah, absolutely. There's, yeah. there's encrypted chat. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's cool actually how it's set up because essentially on Nostra, what you have is you generate, it's kind of similar to Bitcoin where you generate a private key, right? And then you're able to use that private key for all of your Nostra related activity. It's kind of the same way of like manage your keys for Bitcoin, manage your keys for Nostra, right? And so that's why the Bitcoin community has been very, like, it's a very easy tradition. If you're a Bitcoiner, you want to use like this social media, it's super easy, you yeah, know? Exactly. Yeah. And you have the same thing as encrypted chat. And there's actually like a new bounties webpage that allows you to like, there's one on there like, oh, redesign the Telegram interface okay. um, to use Nostra for um, like encrypted chat, essentially. Very, very cool to see. Yeah. I guess one other thing I think is really great. It's like, it's, uh, it's not really the censorship, but like a pri- the privacy of your data, right? Because like, no matter where you are in the world, mm-hmm. I'm very aware, like there's some reports last year about the US government essentially subpoenaing Twitter, Facebook, and Apple. Mm-hmm. Um, so things such as your Twitter history, who you're DMing, the content of your DMs, including with Apple, your iCloud information, your mm-hmm. iMessages, are all subject to like the FBI enforcement and the CIA that can read all of that through like a national security apparatus, like a court, mm-hmm. secret court system, right? So even in America, which I'm sure Canada as well, you have those systems where it's actually readable. But I think the one thing I know about uh, Signal is that it got subpoenaed by the US government multiple times, but there's really nothing they can give because they don't have ownership to that mm-hmm. data. So they got subpoenaed and they just gave them like a blank paper. <laughs> that's that's what's in it, right? Essentially, there's nothing else. They do have the, the phone number of the person registering. That, yeah. that was it. So, and I guess with Signal, I believe it's end-to-end encrypted. And then do they even keep the encrypted data? I don't recall whether they encrypt the, uh, keep the encrypted data. Because you could make the argument that if they, you know, encryption has a shelf life, right? right. So if they're inc- keeping the encrypted data, then they so they could be subpoenaed and then they give them the encrypted data of the particular user. But if they don't even have that and it's end-to-end, then then they don't even have that I believe it's end-to-end. Yeah, so so that's huge, right? And, so, and it's beautiful that like that has been created. Do you guys know the story behind like Signal? I believe... Wasn't he working on WhatsApp and then... He's a co-founder of WhatsApp. He co-founder of WhatsApp. Yeah. And then he went and founded WhatsApp and then left and actually did, you know, was there for a couple of years after it was bought out. And then he went and built Signal because he's like, hey, you know, I got paid, right? (laughs) (laughs) And now I want to, you know, now I want to build something for humanity. And it's donation-based. Exactly, yeah. Beautiful. And, and what's funny is uh, he was interviewing at Facebook too to try to get a job there. To oh, really? Like, uh, yeah, WhatsApp. And they just didn't accept him. And then they bought his company for how many billion? Like I think 10 one, billion. Yeah, and that's like crazy. 50, 50 people working there or something. Yeah. It was a crazy, crazy idea. I mean, it, it is end to end encrypted, but like, I think every other day that Facebook has access to it. Like, who's your friends? Who's your contact? Yeah. How often do you con- contact, contact them? Who do you add? Where do you are? Where you access this? So I, I, I'm pretty sure, like, although the chats are encrypted, mm-hmm. your privacy, it's not. Mm. Right, unfortunately. So like, that's why they created Signal, uh, mm-hmm. which is pretty expensive to maintain if you think about it. And it's purely based on donations and nonprofits. So that alternative, like a uh, Twitter alternative, also a nonprofit or something like that, is that based on the donations? Or? Yeah, basically. Well, they were asking like, oh, I think Jack Dorsey was asking, oh, is there a is there a foundation that you guys have? And they're like, oh, no, we're just a bunch of developers. And Jack Dorsey took one day, he looked through all the stuff, and then you start sending out Bitcoin to them, right? Oh, <laughs> so wow. it's pretty insane. Yeah, that's crazy. But uh, yeah, speaking of which, what's going on with uh, 
Speaking of Facebook, like what's going on with Meta lately? What's the uh, what's the latest? Yeah, I don't know if you guys saw, like the stock price just completely went like erupted high. And I think what's kind of like showing is Meta's kind of going through a transition where like usually we saw like uh, back in the day, companies go from being a growth stage to a mature company, yeah, right? Yeah. Like we've never really seen that in tech to the scale of like a company as big as like Facebook, mm-hmm. where like they're basically now at the point where this is a cash cow. Like they're they're making so much money. Like they've kind of reached the peak in terms of like the amount of users they can add to Facebook, yeah, right? Like yeah. they aren't going to be able to add more. But now what you're seeing is like more of like a mature, like a value company, right? Saying that, okay, yeah, we have this much cash that we can create like free cash flow every quarter, every year. And so now you're attracting a completely different type of investor. You know, you have more of your activist investors that care about like uh, dividends and like uh, stock repurchases, like yeah. any kind of cash distribution to like yeah. the shareholders. Mm-hmm. Facebook kind of shifting towards this, uh, you know, like with like their layoffs that have happened. There's like a joke saying that this is the first time where the Facebook finally started talking about efficiency, you know, like they're talking about actually like, you know, like keeping like not as much about the metaverse and like growing like different parts of their company and more about like keeping it efficient, keeping a lean company. Right. So this is going to be kind of cool to see other companies that have gone like really big and like can produce a lot of cash. But they don't really have another market that they can like grow towards like uh, organically. And so I think this can be kind of interesting with like all the dry powder coming in. Like uh, we're going to see a lot of shift going towards like value investing. I think phase is going to be a good like uh, yeah. case study for that. And what was the reason for their stock price increasing? Was it the profitability was higher than people expected? It, it was like both just revenue and like the fact they were profitable. Like their revenue like completely blew out the water. I think it was like fifty six billion is like um in cash that they generated, which is just incredible for like a company, right? And yeah, so that just completely grew their stock out. And like, I think they're, um, they went from like 90 something dollars, like back in, um, November when they were first announcing the layoffs. And like now it's almost a $200 their share price. Okay. Which is almost a like, more than double. And for a company that big, you're seeing more than like the, like hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap that have been like added to the company, which will be like, really crazy to see in like the next coming bit. But I guess to be fair, I guess that's after they lost significant market cap. Like has it even reached the all time high yet? Or I don't think we're, I don't think we're there. No. Yeah, it's not even close to all time. I, I don't think it's going to get there for a while, right? Because like all the all time highs we saw was in a, like a market of free money, which mm-hmm. meant that like you could take so much risk. Now, even with like, you know, like the interest rates like rising, I think we're kind of like at a peak for like how much you're going to rise it. But it's just more expensive to like uh, be in the equities market when you can be in the debt market too, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I can just go to the treasury yield and get 5%, mm-hmm. like why do I want to risk it for like a company like um you know, Facebook, Apple, they're like the high quality blue chips in terms of growth yeah. stock, right? But like the other companies, why do they want to risk that? So like this kind of equities, we're not going to see like the valuations we saw like at the all time high for ever, honestly, it could be like possible unless the company itself like proves that they're worth that much. Yeah. And, like execution. And there is a recent change in like, there, there's a recent change in sentiment in the macroeconomics. Uh, so I'm like, maybe you want to talk us a little bit more about that, because I thought that has like some direct impact into how Facebook prices share price also rose. Yeah, I think that kind of showed like the entire market. There's like been kind of conflicting sides of both. Uh, we saw like Jerome Powell saying that, yeah, we're in a deflationary period. I think he mentioned like 10, 15 times like in his uh, speech. And they only increased uh, interest rates by 0.25 when it was like, kind of expected it was going to be at 0.5. And it's expected there's not going to be too many more increases. I think only one more like increase. Okay. If you look at the yield curve right now. It's kind of showing that we've we've almost hit the peak of like where we think the 
like um, interest rates going to be. So that kind of shows that, yeah, we think we're, we like kind of combated inflation, like, you know, like the planes landing now, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, we're going towards like more of a deflationary period. But then the next part of that, which happened like just a day later was like the unemployment report came out. And like, usually you see the fact that there's been so many jobs created, like people think that's a really good sign, right? Yeah. Like almost 600,000 jobs are created when we were only expecting about 100,000 oh jobs. As good as that sounds, what that kind of indicates is that there's less and less talent available for the overall market. So that means that anytime you want to poach somebody, like let's say you're a startup company, right? You know, like, and usually you would like hire somebody for $100,000 and they already have that job for $100,000 at another place. Mm-hmm. You, you know, in MA, you pay a 30% premium to get a company. You're gonna have to pay something similar for like to get an employee, right? To get talent. So then like if you're paying them 30% more, that's $130,000 that you have to pay them in salary, which means the only person that gets affected the most is the end consumer. Because the person that started that company, they're just going to have to charge more prices yeah. to the consumer itself. And the consumer then has to pay more. It just becomes kind of like that cyclical feature, right? Which is mm-hmm. why like the unemployment are kind of increasing more still is signaling that there could be like some form of inflation, which again, like no one kind of knows the overall what's going to happen. Well, I'm curious, like what does that mean for um, kind of the uh, the assumptions around modern modern economic theory, where there's kind of this assumption that um, by changing the, uh, the interest rates mm-hmm. um, and doing a rate hike um, that modifies unemployment and it doesn't seem to be following what they assumed, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, yeah, no, like I think that kind of shows like um, the Fed can control almost everything except like the labor market, right? Like labor mm-hmm. market is going to be based on like like all of economics is transaction by transaction, kind of like the way blockchain is and like all combined together, right? Yep. And essentially like just because you increase interest rates, if there there's just so much money that got put into the system in the past two years, more money that got printed in the past two years than like in the history of ever, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like if you have that much money, there's gonna be people that still wanna take risks, that still wanna start companies, that still wanna mm-hmm. and then there's gonna be companies that have all this cash from beforehand too, that they can pay for talent. Like um you know, and I know we've seen in tech so much layoffs because of how bloated tech got, but a lot of the other industries did not get nearly as bloated because like their stocks didn't go up nearly as much during that mm-hmm. time, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing like, all Duncan still hire people and like they're still hiring. Like there isn't as much of like a job freeze in some of the other industries that weren't as correlated to the tech side. And okay. yeah, and because of that, we're going to see that like, even if interest rates go up, these companies, their overall business has not been affected as much. Right. And so... Um, they'll be completely fine. They can still hire employees. And yeah. if your unemployment doesn't, uh, it sounds really like negative to say, like uh, unemployment go higher, but it just means that there's less people available, less people can like incentivize leaving. And it's just going to be a cyclical feature from that. Mm. I just want to say that, well, the more money being printed in the last two years, in the last 100, that's the bull case for Bitcoin right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I guess the question I have is like, the, we, everyone's predicting we're entering a recession this year, but like mm-hmm. the job market, like as I've mentioned many, many times we have before on the show, mm-hmm. the job market performance has been better and better every single month. And where are we on this recession thing? Because like because when in a recession, unemployment is supposed to be very high, like such as a 2008 cycle. Like well, it could be possible that the recession just like the real recession hasn't hit yet. I don't know. <laughs> right. Like a lot of people have been calling for, you know, the, the recession is coming. And yeah. It hasn't it hasn't really like we haven't really um, saw the effects of right. what's to come yet. So, yeah, yeah there is there is an article last week uh, that says about basically like a, there are many investors are predicting like a black swan event, mm-hmm. which I think is actually pretty interesting because it comes down to like the modern portfolio theory. It says that if you just allocate 0.1% of your portfolio into like super black swan events, over mm-hmm. the past 10 years, your portfolio return will actually perform 
I think four percent better annually. Really, compared with the S and P. Like if you if you have a portfolio normally that doesn't do Black Swan adjustments, and if you adjust for Black Swan, I think it is four percent more. I don't think annually. I think in total in the past four, 10 years, okay, it would improve four percent of your portfolio, total portfolio returns just by alchemy. Well, yeah, 0. it can't 5%. be year year over year because yeah, it, yeah, Black Swan only occurs in what every 10 years. Exactly, or? exactly. So I guess the one concern would be um, can like our governments handle Black Swan events like uh competently <laughs> like uh we saw with covid like all the responses on like every side of things was like very just like dramatic and very drastic and we're kind of seeing the effects of that now so if there's a black swan event like you said like this year do we know if like our governments can kind of handle that well well fiat is a 50-year <laughs> experiment so <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean a death ceiling can very well be very well be a black swan event the mm-hmm. u.s testing like it's like people are saying like they should stop it i mean i don't think so i think they're gonna like they're gonna increase it anyways but probably gonna pull up a show for it so i do think that might be a potential for a black event i i just think like is it do we really know it's gonna happen in 2023 right it's just like a typical time frame like unless there's something going on like the terra luna collapse in like uh, crypto no one really expected that yeah. but that brought the whole industry up as upside down uh, i think maybe something we can see that happening similarly in the in the fiat currency world that's kind of fifty economy to down. Right. Like, like what's the, what's the percentage chance that the hyperinflation occurs to USD in the next year? Okay. Right. And Probably pretty low. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or like Goldman got out of business or something. <laughs> that would bring the stock market down, right? Like as long as if one of the traditional players collapse, that's it. Yeah. Right? We'll see like the domino effect happening, just like with the, with Terra Luna, with FTX in crypto, and people kind of go, oh, they're unregulated, but they're also financial institutions that might that already being like back tested that is super horrible in 2008 has to get bailed out by the government right mm-hmm. will this happen this time around uh, or is it going to be happen somewhere else so i think that's really interesting in terms of like what's happening in the, the market yeah so what are your thoughts yeah no if we see that some of the banks had like huge exposures like uh in the past couple of years the way like 08 was mm-hmm. and like you know like a layman or something goes down like yeah, yeah that could that could trickle down because that kind of loses the consumer confidence in itself. Right? And I think that's like, in OA, the government had to literally put like uh, laws that you cannot short, you cannot like, uh, you know, like short the side of like stocks because of how much everything was going down. Mm-hmm. You know, you're seeing lines of like hours and hours long. People just want to take their cash. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's going to like, um, well, like well, 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 just like Bitcoin, these cryptocurrencies, that's going to like prove like a real use case that we're seeing banks are just not competent either. Like, well, if people go to the bank where they think their money is safe, and they can't withdraw. Yeah. What happens? What like what 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 confidence does that create um, for the banking system mm-hmm. and for the underlying currency? We all know that the systems that were being built by FTX are not that far off from the traditional financial system, where mm-hmm. there is not enough capital to 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 cover you know what people have originally put in, and yeah. so you know and and everyone's only insured up to you know hundred thousand yeah. dollars, and so uh, you know it's it's pretty easy for the entire system to come. You know, collapse. You know, start collapsing if if everyone just goes to withdraw from the bank. Yeah, and people should realize like when you put your money into a bank account like Bank of America, Chase, TD, your money goes through. You automatically sign up for a money sweep program. That's what it's called. So your money will get swept with other accounts and other from other banks in your bank into a money market account. Mm-hmm. And a money market account essentially means that ninety nine percent of the holdings has to be from U S. Treasuries and U S. back government backed bonds. So what happens if the U.S. government defaults? 
all that it's going to come collapsing real quick that's just like the that, that's why the government cannot let it happen of a default yeah. but i'm just saying like your money is not really in a bank it's in a sweet program right like essentially we're on borrowed time and they have to keep doing certain things to prevent that from occurring um they have to keep printing money they have to keep the system going mm-hmm. and and at what point does um does that fail essentially i think is the question and what is the timeline for that yeah, I think a lot of this sparks from the fact that so many of our politicians and people that kind of make these decisions are so short term. Like mm-hmm. they care more about getting elected for their next term than like actually seeing like, you know, like, yeah, fiat's like a 50, 60 year like yeah. uh, experiment. Exactly. No one's cared about the 50, 60 year point, right? They only care about like the next three, four years. Like how is this going to make me look next time like the elections come up? Mm-hmm. So we're yeah. gonna, if if USA were to go into a like debt center, I think that could... China, China owns the most amount of debt from USA too, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, which uh, comes back to our next topic, uh, macro, like essentially <laughs> like a Chinese balloon yeah. uh, that's happened. I think it's a really interesting topic because, like, not not just like how it's happening in terms of the tension between two countries, mm-hmm. um, but like for our listeners who haven't heard of it, um, a Chinese quote unquote spy balloon was spotted near Montana a um, couple of days back, uh, and then that uh, created a lot of tensions. And I think the U.S. Defense Secretary. Uh, announced that the balloon is there and it rushed the news cycle. Um, so, uh, so I, my, my question is like, why announce it to the public? Because I'm pretty sure it's not the first time that the, that, that this thing has happened, mm-hmm. right? So why are they trying to defect? Is it, is it that they're trying to increase the funding for the U.S. defense? Because uh, now it's, that's getting pulled a little bit. Is it because that uh, a secretary of state Blinken is going to uh, visit China literally on Saturday and the news broke on Thursday? Because the timing is so coincidental, I, I just I just don't believe that it's just like a thing that's they just well, wasn't there like people who saw it like in the air like as it went across and people were wondering what it was like was that really related to like why it was why it was disclosed? Uh, I would uh, say I would say there are many sightings uh, about like UFOs and other things, right? Yeah, I don't think I think it could just be like kind of like when we saw like you know like anytime you kind of want to like engage uh, like more like a partisan from like you know like say like like an anti-china kind of like um sentiment in usa and stuff like that i think that could kind of be like something they want to just like start like playing around with that right. isn't that insane though like the, the response of the response of humans to a balloon that went off course is <laughs> fear and uh oh they're the enemy right like right yeah. which just seems insane like it was probably just a like let's be honest you can get way better imagery of any place on earth from satellites yeah. it's not like a, a balloon is with whatever hardware on it is really doing a lot of damage in whoever's airspace. And what's also bizarre to me is they let it go across the entire country and then they shot it down. If you were worried about it and you saw it as a threat, why didn't you take it down as soon as it entered U.S. airspace? So mm-hmm. that all seems very strange to me. And maybe that's just incompetence. I don't know. Yeah. And, and let's not forget that is the same day of the FBI raiding Biden's home to searching for classified papers. Oh, really? So it's around the same day that happened. I mean, not raided, it's searched for his home, founding classified documents. So that has been escalating really quickly. Yeah, so Biden and Mike Pence. So I Is that the that same is. thing they did to Trump? <laughs> I'm not, but they're not raiding Biden's That's home. They, they were invited or something. Oh, not invited. Well, I, they, I think they went. The Biden team volunteered. They went in and they searched for documents because of the sentiment just so bad. Like, like how. So the Biden's lawyer found the classified documents, which they have no. Like they, they have no clearance to read those papers. So how can you allow someone who is potentially like a suspect into a crime and say that, which, which is what it is. Mm-hmm. How can you allow their lawyers to search for their premises mm-hmm. for unclassified documents, like crime documents? How does that make sense? Like I, I'm just very, and people are just very confused about it. I think that's why the FBI is not reading it. In terms of, but I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that has anything to do with a, with a balloon, 
But just like the balloon news happened right a day before the Secretary of State's visit in China, it's very, very weird. Well, it feels like there's a certain narrative that's trying to be built yeah. like in the news, and they want to stick to that narrative. And, and so the news that comes out um, related to fear or uncertainty or doubt or re- relating to like particular people or an administration seems seems to be related to that. And it seems that you know the media was really trying to push for Biden to get into office, and now it seems that they're they've shifted their tone right. in relation to Biden as we like get closer to the next U.S. election. What's the deal with that? Is that just because he's more senile now and they realize he, he's unable to run the country properly? I don't yeah. know. And I saw that the Democratic Party just make the changes to the primary rules. Apparently, South Carolina now is number one instead of Iowa oh, for really? the primary caucus. So I'm not sure that has anything to do with Biden. I, I don't think so. But they, they are making changes. And I think there are more people willing to challenge Biden come this like election circle, especially with the papers. Mm-hmm. Like it's honestly not anyone cares about those papers, but like we discussed a lot of episodes, just very weird in terms of the politics of it. Now they're bringing a Chinese balloon when there's like literally a war going on in Ukraine and Russia. So I just feel like it's uh, weird. Well, this is unprecedented times if we have two presidents in a row that are one term presidents. Right. Has that ever happened before? <laughs> I can't well, that's interesting. I don't know. I can't remember anything of it. Do you think like the economy is part of the reason why Trump wasn't like in the first place? But I thought like during the Trump time, like the economy was like flowing. Like um, even when like uh, the Trump Biden election was going on, like the economy is probably the best it's been at the time. I see. There was tons of defamation from the media against him, and I mean he didn't help himself by opening his mouth. <laughs> yeah. But, so so I mean that's that's a good question for you know what do you expect of a president? Do you follow what they do for their policy and their and their policy is sound and so they're a great president, or do they also need to be a good speaker and not kind of create a media storm around themselves that you know erodes confidence? And so I think you had an, an interesting kind of piece of the pie with with Trump where he didn't really know how to control or the media was against him but yeah. you know first off yeah. but but he had policy that enabled for the economy to thrive but what was really interesting to me was that the media was it was like a media circus while Trump was in mm-hmm. and as soon as it went to Biden everything quieted down yeah what's up with that <laughs> right i think it's definitely problematic i just think like we have so many issues right now going on with the world like we have the debt ceiling in the US mm-hmm. whether ukraine russia war we have like the economic inflation that's impacting people, that the, the upcoming like recession, the unemployment rate uh, going down, which is great news. But yeah. there's so many things that are happening that needs to be taken care of. Not a Chinese balloon. I just think like the Chinese balloon news that just got like fabricated, not fabricated, but like, just got released by the administration and the media quickly pick it up. It's like, I- I'm just not sure what they're trying to distract the uh, general public from. It's like all of humanity is like focused on like short-term thinking and we need to lower our time preference. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is an interesting thing related to one of the arguments for like having a monarchy is that you have like one person in power that is able to kind of think for the long term. Not mm-hmm. not that I'm for like a monarchy, you know, being passed Oh, you have this blood. So and you're, it's passed down. But it's interesting to have like a concept of a person that is there to be thinking for the long term. And then also have, you know, you have a prime minister, your president that is, you know, in every, you know, four years or eight yeah. years that is able to think for the long term is, and the people are able to elect. Because how do you keep that balance, sh- like short term thinking related to election cycles mm-hmm. with the long term outcome of a country? And I think, you know, a lot in North America, we're very focused on the on the short term, yeah. which is concerning. Yeah. And that's a good point, because if you look at some of the countries in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, like they're really invested towards like the long term or even like the United Arab Emirates. They invest a lot towards the long term, right? Like uh, the amount they're putting money in so that like uh, people come to Dubai for the tech space, right? Because they want to ship from oil. Yeah. Saudi Arabia is making that one like was a 10 mile city 
for like some God knows how much it is, but <laughs> don't, there's no way you could create something like that in like USA, right? Like, because like there's too much bureaucratic, like a uh, red tape in the middle. You're just never going to be able to cut through it all. Right. But yeah. Like that monarchy or having like a centralized state, like you can kind of just say, yeah, we want this. Let's do it. Yeah, to, right? to be, to be fair on the, on the one mile long city, <laughs> I, I heard an architect's perspective on this. Like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of <laughs> because, because basically you have this place that it's, it's, it's like a huge, like um desert. Right. Yeah. And then, uh, you have everything along one line and then once you got people starting to live there well where do you expand right there's nowhere to expand and then also you need to pay a ton of money for like air conditioning to have it work properly exactly. along that line exactly. so it's like but i agree like in general like they seem yeah. to have been like very long-term thinking and they have what, what is their system they have like the the prince of saudi arabia yeah. and he's in charge of the country like I, i'm actually not familiar yeah no it's exactly that. like yeah, the prince kind of gets to make the decisions about most things right and like but in the mile long city whether or not it works or not the fact that they're able to do something like that mm-hmm. It's kind of like the more telling part. I find it kind of dystopian if I'm being honest. Like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've read like books enough that something like this is just like not going to work out. But they're able to do it. That's the mm-hmm. thing that like in Canada, USA, we're not able to see because experience, like I was saying a little bit earlier, it's too short term. Like you're more invested in getting elected again than on like the benefit of your country overall. Yeah, which is, you have the China 2025, you have the Saudi Arabia exactly. 2050. What is like some Canada 2050 or, or USA 2050? There's no plan. Mm-hmm. There is no vision. Like we're just continuing on as we go. And if there is, like it's going to get changed after when the next party goes into office. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like for China is able to build subways at a ridiculous pace. Yeah. And yet here in Toronto, for example, what is the timeline for building line five or line six or whatever subway line it is? And is that going to change with the new government? Right. And, right. and it's always this kind of question in place. I like how the Saudi Arabia, um, they're, they're like their vision, just like we're diversifying away from oil and they're taking actions like signing uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, and yeah, all those other and they're doing like you can see that there's like progress being made I, I can't obviously can we can comment on, on the other things about that country but i just think on a visionary perspective uh, i totally agree with you guys like the short-term perspective that we have nowadays is just like it's too much yeah no we're seeing like like the world cup with like qatar like all these like countries that have just a bunch of cash from oil they realize that yeah oil is a finite supply right and we're actually running out like in the next i think 50 years it's supposed to like almost yeah. be done but they've supply. said that for a long time haven't they yeah. didn't they say 30 Maybe. years ago that it was, it was gone in 10 years and yeah but they keep finding more and yeah well Sa- saudi arabia is buying lucid motors That's yeah, yeah, yeah. news that just like broke last weekend so lucid motors i think it's uh something created in 2004 or, or 11. Yeah. so lucid motors was created actually by the chief engineer of the first tesla okay and so like um he then like branched out created lucid and they kind of want to be more of like a luxury electric vehicle and so like it has very similar stats in terms of like the performance to like the tesla except the part of like actually like the ai that tesla is able to adopt mm-hmm. and so okay. like saudi arabia used to own like a lot in tesla too and they kind of like uh, diversified from tesla and going towards lucid because yeah, they and like one of the pinnacles in that deal was the fact that Lusa has to make a a factory in Saudi Arabia for that. So we're seeing yeah, like they're trying to invest on the electric side too, which is counterintuitive if you're an oil country, right? What are you guys' thoughts on EVs in general, electric vehicles? Overall, I think one thing we haven't thought about enough is about like you know like recycling of the batteries, stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. I think 15, 20 years down the line, with a lot of electric vehicles, once the battery starts eroding, where are you putting them all? Well, I think the other question too is. Um, Everyone kind of sees it as the perfect green alternative. But yeah. the question is, where is that electricity coming from? If you're burning coal, coal in order to get the electricity necessary, then you know, you're, you're, you're doing worse for the environment. And if the car itself is a worse 
ecological footprint than just a gas car in the first place, yeah. then you know there, there seems to be this kind of view of uh, theater, carbon tax theater or uh, green theater that, mm-hmm. that, that it, you know, you feel like you're doing a good thing by having a Tesla, but you need to make sure, oh, you know, where is that electricity actually coming from? Or you're, you know, you're working backwards at the end of the day. And so it's just crazy that there's just kind of this one narrative that's like green, green, green energy at all costs. And it doesn't matter what the offset is, essentially. Yeah, I agree with that. Like one concern that's happened, like, we see this in Europe a lot right now with like the war that happened. All these countries, like uh, more like Western countries, they kind of just want to outsource all of that guilt. So like Tesla, all these other companies, like their raw materials might be like um, produced in like a very non-ESG way, right? Mm. But Tesla itself will be very ESG. So they can kind of be guilt-free. They're outsourcing all their guilt. Right. Same with like a lot of these countries saying that oh yeah we don't do any kind of oil we don't do any kind of like you know like gas then you see like um like sweden like all these countries and norwegian countries they have some of the biggest like sovereign wealth funds where one some of their biggest investments are in like oil companies right yeah so the way you created all this money was through like all these like non-esg components but then because you aren't directly doing it you're kind of able to keep your hands clean and we're starting to see like all this unravel now because it's still happening it's not that like oh, it stopped happening it's just you weren't directly part of it. And like we're seeing people care about like the f- initial raw materials. How is that mine? Yeah, exactly. yeah, it's like outsourcing. It doesn't solve the problem. Exactly. If, if another country is increasing, you know, is polluting the environment on and when you're, you get to stay clean, it's mm-hmm. not because you're a clean country. It's you're, you're outsourcing where that's occurring. Yeah. And it's bizarre to me, too, that like what Germany did, for example, where they shut down all the nuclear plants and then basically, you know, went and bought oil from Russia. And so, and then you had a dramatic increase in the price of electricity in mm-hmm. Germany, for example, and their biggest hope was that there wasn't going to be a cold winter. But if you look at kind of the pyramid of people, you have, you know, the elites at the top and the people that are poor at the bottom, well, increasing the electricity costs and doing this thing where we're going green and it's okay to increase the electricity costs in the short term and, you know, too bad for the people at the bottom. Well, the thing is the people at the bottom, you know, that were barely scraping by, they're now pushed below the poverty line. And so mm-hmm. any hope that they had in their lives is, is being decreased. And they're going to care a lot less about being eco-friendly and care, care yeah. a lot less about the environment. It's like the best way to have the world care about the earth is to make sure that everyone can be rich. And I don't mean rich in terms of the, everyone has the same amount of money. And to, I mean, in terms of resources, if you have enough money to put food on the table, if you have enough money to feed your family and you have enough resources to have what you want, well, now you start caring about the world and you, now you start thinking about the next 20 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. It's like, stop playing games and let's make sure that the, the average person has enough resources. The average person today has way more resources than 200, 300 years ago. Yeah. And we've all known that the countries that have the most energy output are the ones that are generally the richest. And so let's stop trying to play games and, and reduce the you know, energy output of whatever country. And let's maybe focus on increasing the average you know, resources for your average human on Earth. I don't know. I think the best way to do it is like John Rawls, like philosopher, he had this like thing called the veil of ignorance where if you don't know where in society you're going to be, how are you going to build it? You're going to build it so like the worst person has a good life, right? And like it can do like all this other stuff, make sure like, yeah, then care about ESG stuff. Because like the reason why we care about all this is because of like the climate itself, like our life on earth, right? So if you put that veil of ignorance on, like how is like the person all the way at the bottom going to be able to like live? And I kind of build it from that so that, yeah, like those costs itself don't trickle down all the way to like the bottom class, but they actually get like um majority of it's lifted through like the upper class, maybe like the upper middle class too and stuff like that. Like I feel like too much of the burden goes 
and you kind of keep deferring it lower and lower because they don't really get to control like it's bare necessities they need to buy it absolutely well i think the other like thing that's kind of um out of place too is this idea everyone likes to hates to think about the idea of climate change and uh the temperature um getting warmer Mm -hmm. what's actually way more way more dangerous is the climate cooling you know, the number of people, if you increase up like electricity costs and you need to pay more for heat, yeah. um, you know, for an old person, if if you're at an average of like, you know, 20 degrees Celsius or, or below, it increases the chance of heart attack dramatically. So you have way more deaths that can occur from cold temperatures than you do from warm temperatures. And so thank God it's the earth is warming and not cooling because we're going to see less death and not more deaths. Like the number of deaths that you have from heat stroke is like way less than you have from, you know, an old person being in a cold environment for a significant amount of time and then getting a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So I think the whole ESG thing is like, it's a thing that's like, basically, I mean, we talk about this on BlackRock, how, how they're like manipulating ESG by outsourcing and then coming back to yeah. their, it's essentially like a cycle. So ESG, I think it's a lot of this like a rich people's game. I think uh, there's really not a lot of like conversation of ESG happening for like, most people mm-hmm. um, that are like just living their lives normally, there's no, there's no calling ESG and ESG outsourcing, and then coming back so that you can be carbon neutral. It's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Well, what I love it's the it's the elites talking about the climate change and carbon output, and they're flying their private jets to Davos, yeah. you know, for the World World Economic Forum. So yeah, exactly. you're doing all this gymnastics just to portray that you're doing well when like yeah, you're literally flying your private jet, which is worse than I forget how much like. One trip on a private jet is worse than I think like, like an entire year of like maybe not an entire year but some kind of like crazy a thousand thing. cars in like yeah. five days or something. Right. Thing. Like, yeah, if you, book a, if you book a flight using Google, it actually tells you how much coverage that you are as a passenger you're bringing into the world. I think like a typical flight from Toronto to New York, you're like you're doing like 300 kg of like uh, carbon like CO2. That's just how much it is. Well, I think the other thing too, like when you look at, you have warming and you have cooling cycles that exist Mm. in the earth for thousands and thousands of years. The earth was like much, much warmer during the time of the dinosaurs, for example, which is why you had, you know, much larger animals that existed at that time. There's So I also wonder too, if, we've actually evaluated properly. Um, like obviously humans are contributing a certain amount of CO2 to the air, but what were the historic actual heat levels of the earth and what did life actually look at that time? I've heard reports of like, there's a greening effect that's going on with more CO2 in the air where, you know, places that were previously deserts are now able to actually grow plants and stuff. And so mm-hmm. I think we need to do more research into what does the planet actually look like with X amount of CO2 or X amount of warming? How devastating is that? One of those things is like sea level rise. Okay, if you live in Florida, what does that look like when the ice caps melt, right? Yeah. <laughs> and low level areas. So and maybe they need to be like the Dutch and they need to make um, <laughs> you know, dams and whatever. But I think that's something that just hasn't been explored as much, especially by, by mainstream media and mainstream science. So. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think now it's interesting. Let us get into a prediction phase for Netflix. Uh, so there's recently, <laughs> there, is, there is like the speculation and the news coming out saying like Netflix is going to ban password sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, Netflix has already been trying to ban. Now they have a trial program in Chile that's already happened, I think, a couple months ago. Okay. So I think it is inevitable, although Netflix saying, that, okay, it was just a, like a false posting on their website. But essentially, Matt, are you familiar with how the password sharing ban ha- is occurring? I'm not sure, actually. What is it? Is it essentially that, you know, they're looking at specific IP addresses, yeah. I believe. And then if you're in that same IP address, or you're in a different IP addresses, then they consider that Password sharing, yeah, exactly, exactly. IP address, device, device ID, and there are many other things to and determine that. Wasn't it also like uh, they were like thinking that every month you have to go back to your home base at one point yes. and log on there? Exactly. That, which makes no sense if like you're a university student and things like that, and you actually have like a family account, mm-hmm. or if you're traveling. 
Um, yeah, yeah. That's like, right. like my family lives in BC and I, I pay for their Netflix, right? Like what are we going to need to get two different Netflix accounts, right? Like you're supposed to be able to have, oh, one, two, three, four accounts, right? Exactly. I guess users on a Netflix account. Now you're just increasing the burden for people that, you know, families like that go to university or, or live apart for a certain period of time. They're the first doing it, apparently. Like there's HBO, there's Showtime, there's Crave, there's so many other services. Disney Plus, like they're all not doing password sharing. Password sharing is not something that's only occurring on Netflix. Mm-hmm. People do it all the time. Uh, just like, how are they trying to do it knowing that the impact it has towards like the people who just unsubscribe, right? I mean, well, Matt, what do you think the, the consequences of this action will be if it gets implemented here? Uh, con- well, I mean, consequences. Well, it, it seems to me, it feels to me like the reason they're doing this is because they've lost ways to increase market share. They've become yeah. saturated and they don't really have a way to increase market share. And so they need to figure out a way to increase the bottom line. But ironically, what this could, uh, like what's the worst case scenario for Netflix, it could result in people canceling Netflix. And I'm interested to see, does this increase their bottom line or does it decrease it in, in a form of people just ending up canceling the subscription itself? What do you guys think? Yeah, I think like uh, what's ended up happening is all these other like uh, streaming services that have like come out, they just decide to stop licensing their like shows to Netflix. It used to be that oh, like everything from like Friends, all these big like legacy shows would just like license to Netflix, and then all these companies got free cash. They realized, wait, we can make more by doing it ourselves. And you have so many fragmented streaming services that if you actually want to watch all the shows you want to watch, it costs the same as like what cable used to be back in the day. Mm. And then so it's just gonna be kind of interesting to see because yeah, like Netflix is like losing users, both like a much more competitive landscape. And also, they have to create their own, like, shows itself. And that's expensive. Like, you know, like Netflix wasn't originally a studio. Like, these Netflix originals, some hit big and a lot also don't hit big. You know what has always bothered me is that I start like, the first streaming service I ever used was Netflix. For some reason, I like the interface, right? Yeah. And whenever I use a different interface, I'm like, why can't I just watch this using, like, the Netflix player, you know? Right. It, it almost feels like all of this should have been some type of a protocol, essentially, like basically, right? Like some base protocol for video. And then you have like interfaces that can be built on top that monetize or improve the user experience in one way or another. But the question is, how then is the content monetized? And is there a way to have that content be monetizable over the internet? But maybe there is, maybe there's a way to, you know, um, you know, imagine you could have a protocol where, you know, uh, you, you pay per like minute, for example, and yeah. you pay using Bitcoin Lightning Network. Um, and, and that's a new way of being able to stream. And then the, uh, you know, whatever interface is built on top is then able to monetize on top of that. I don't know. There, there's an idea. You build it up, you build it on top of like BitTorrent or, 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 or just a torrent like protocol or something of that nature. I don't know. So Google's doing something kind of like that. Not, not the part about like monetize through, uh, Bitcoin or anything, but, they're taking essentially like um all these cable companies they realize a lot of people don't actually watch on tv so they watch on their phone so youtube just like license that out and then you pay youtube tv and you get basically the same as you get in like a cable package for like a like a big premium pack. i think it's like 100 bucks a month or something mm-hmm. but then you get that and like i'm sure youtube gives like a lot of money to his cables in the background but then you get to watch on the youtube interface you know like youtube's something you're so used to mm-hmm. you're used to navigating and stuff like that yeah. and i think that is going to be like something that ends up happening more and more as like, you know, people start caring about the interface, like, because that's the only like real differentiator if like the content itself is getting kind of similar in terms of quality. Well, it's unfortunate that like something like Netflix is no, they're no longer a technology company. They're a studio. Uh, well, they're a studio, yeah. like they're, they're, they're a content creation company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter so much about, you know, what their tech look like. It used to be that Netflix was the best tech yeah. on the block in terms of streaming much, much better than anything else. Now that doesn't even matter. Right. And what matters is the content that they have exclusive access to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I don't know, like maybe maybe we're going to have this fragmentation for a long period of time. Yeah. Maybe some type of protocol is going to pop up in 10 years and then it's going to completely, you know, remake the entire industry. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to add on to that. I think HBO Max, like, was, they had a very uh, shitty app. And I think recent years that the HBO Max has actually become so much more better. Mm. I think very close to Netflix. If not, I think it's not, if not better. It looks very premium and easy to use, at least on my iPad. Um, I, I mean, my prediction for the Netflix thing is like w the U.S. consumer sentiment is already going a lot lower. So it means that people are already thinking about ways of cutting costs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And most people sign up for like, like what, during 2020, 2021, during COVID lockdowns, those people are like probably just let it slide. They're not canceling it because like, you know, people don't really bother to cancel their subscriptions. Um, now, I think this is giving them reason to push back and just cancel their subscriptions. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't have the stats for that, but I know that as a subscription uh, company like a lot of your revenue actually made off from people forgetting to cancel subscriptions it's just mm -hmm. kind of piling on right so I, I think that might be the trigger for people just to end up doing it well it's interesting too because now if like netflix goes and makes changes and then that causes people to go and cancel it well then that's a that's a huge like loss for netflix but if yeah. this all stems from this um ridiculous idea that a company is supposed to um always grow right like <laughs> like you're as a company like the goal in the market is is you um you grow 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 and you never stop. Yeah. And it's like, well, what do you just, you just grow and you consume everything on earth? Like, well, like what's, what is the goal, right? And so it's interesting how that, how that goal of incredible growth at all costs. Yeah. In this case could result in Netflix, like actually like losing if they end up, you know, pushing too hard on a particular thing and it goes, mm -hmm. goes the wrong way and backfires on them. That kind of brings back to like what we were talking about with Facebook. Right? We're going to see like this new wave where like companies that Netflix also kind of almost maximize their user base, right? Because of, how fragmented the entire market is. Like one thing I've noticed a lot is people like get Netflix for one month, Disney plus for another month based on the show they want to watch and keep going that way. Right? So yeah, we're going to see like these mature companies like Netflix that just become a cash cow. And then it's like, you know, like hopefully that's kind of like the way Netflix kind of understand that they're kind of reaching maturity mm -hmm. and I kind of change their like business model to be more of like a value company. Well, I think they need to think about how to innovate and maybe it's yeah. not like, you know, as, as directly to what they've done so far, they need to start thinking of the underlying Netflix as their cash cow and then um, expanding outwards to new new products. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. And I think maybe the model of like releasing everything at once and use some improvements to like maximize revenue, right? And instead of like banning password sharing, maybe release your show in like three parts or four parts. Yeah, I miss like waiting that week, right? Like, right. Uh, you know, yeah, to get really the next episode. Everyone just binge it, and then no, not, not, there's no discussion really about the shows, right? Which I think is missing. Like, if you watch an HBO show or something else, like you kind of expect, like in the week you're waiting for it, you kind of like anticipate like Game of Thrones or something. Yeah. You kind of you kind of anticipate, you kind of build up, like okay, what's going on, and then it's like a full season that has it. I'm not saying Netflix should do it, but it does bring HBO more revenue. Like, yeah, House of Dragons, like, it's it's exciting to see, like, you know, like, for the week you're, you're talking with your friends, like, no, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. If you have, like, all the episodes, like, right away, like, you're not really talking about right, it, you're not, you're not talking about it. That's a good point. You create, like, uh, Netflix essentially creates echo chambers of, like, you know, or not an echo chamber, but I guess just, like, you're concentrated on one show and now another person's working in a different yeah. show and nobody talks about the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, when we grew up, like, you know, like, yeah, you used to just talk about, like, uh, the Disney Channel would always have, like, these, like, Wizards of Waverly Place, like, new, like, episodes come out, like, these movies or Phineas and Ferb, like, that one movie. I remember 
everyone talked about that for like the whole like weeks going into it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever talked about like Netflix shows until like I'm already done. And I've just said, yo, this was a good show. <laughs> <laughs> and then you recommend it to someone else. Exactly. And then you can't talk about it until they're, they're done the entire thing. Yeah. Exactly. And, the, and then at that point, you kind of forget to talk about it too, right? And then you have like maybe one small conversation. Exactly. So I think, yeah, that's really interesting. So let's go to a la- last topic of the day. Okay. Uh, really exciting. So, so you were saying like Google is trying to reintroduce their own AI to beat chat, uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT, right? Yeah, like um, uh, I think like when Google's earnings report's coming out next week, so we're gonna learn a bit more like as like the earnings comes out because like Google's entire monetization has been through their search feature, right? Like that's that's their cash cow. Yes. Like that's Google. Like, that they've almost almost monopolized. Like you, Microsoft tried to bing, everyone kept trying, and nothing beat Google. And so now what we've seen is ChatGPT is something that actually gives you a result right away. And so I think everyone kind of knew Google probably had something in the background. Mm-hmm. And so like in their earnings call, they're expected to talk about the fact that they might be releasing that to directly compete with ChatGPT. Right. And, but, yeah. but isn't Bing also uh, powered by advertisers? Like, well, are they just trying to kill themselves? There's no way they're doing that, right? I don't think well, uh, Microsoft owns Bing and the majority of revenue from Microsoft is not related to Bing at yeah. all, I don't think. And so it seems to me like they're looking at uh, how can ChatGPT just be integrated into all of their various products just to make all their various products better. Yeah. Like Microsoft's business strategy has always been that they'll create like a product and they'll put it into their own bundle. Like, for example, they start like team, sorry, not teams, like a Word, Excel, PowerPoint, right? Mm-hmm. And you pay like um, a subscription for that. Before you just bought the whole thing. Then they started a subscription model and they added more things to the subscription, like teams. They, they kept the price the same for that first year. Then the next year, they just increased that price itself. Okay. So then like you start paying like for the embedded, like each uh, subscription like separately, mm-hmm. but you're paying like a bigger price and they keep going. So like, yeah, Bing itself wasn't made to monetize it. They were hoping that Bing could be part of their thing. So if they get ChatGPT inside of Bing, all that's going to happen is they're just going to create an entire subscription model and they're going to bundle that into that and it's going to end up charging more for that subscription okay. itself starting like a year or two years down. What do you guys think this is going to look like? Because I've seen an example like um, uh, like website that actually, you know, just mm-hmm. had like kind of a chat bot on the side, which yeah. is the, in essence, uh, ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's actually the the end result. Like, you know, I, I would expect it like somehow it improves the actual like results within the search or gives answers to, you know, what's actually being indexed. I don't know. What are you guys thoughts I, on what that's actually going to look like? I think the goal should be to create something the way like the Echo or the Google Home is, where it's like it's voice based, like mm-hmm. typing and stuff like that is kind of like, um, our, was it like archaic or medieval? Like just like something that's like older times. Like voice has really been like where everyone kind of wants to grow. Yeah. But like even like Google Assistant, uh, Siri, all of them, they're not that smart when you want to learn something. Like, they're they are a lot better when it comes to, like, oh, remind me about this. Yeah, like, yeah. a task-based thing. Exactly. But in terms of, like, research or, like, you know, like, um, like getting them to do something or, like, find out information, they've never really been good at that part. And so, like, with ChatGPT, like, that AI implementation to something like these, like, like, um, like form factors, like a voice-enabled one, mm-hmm. I think that's what's going to be, like, the next wave. Yeah. I think, like, for example, like, a personal assistant use case is that you can yeah. actually train open AI as, like, a model to conduct certain things like uh, arranging calendar meetings according to your likings. I think as long as you have enough data to train it, I think it should be easy. Yeah, I think but the concern is gonna be related to privacy, right? Like people, like that's why I don't have a um, like any voice enabled kind of tool at you know my house is like, I don't mm. want, I don't want, like even though I know that they put several processes in place, it's you still like, still a, want, yeah. it's still a worry, right? Yeah. Um, uh, that you know you're just speaking and it's just picking that up in the background. Yeah. Um, so I, it's going to be interesting to see how they how they um, 
uh, how they put the privacy aspect into the into the tool that they're creating. Yeah. Yeah. See, I'm the exact opposite because one of my biggest things I hated was just like getting up at nighttime just to turn my lights off and go back to bed. <laughs> so like I have all that set up in like my Alexa, and then yeah, it's like hey Alexa, like you know like if I just say good night, I'll turn the lights off, all this other stuff. So like I think for me, something like this ChatGPT enable would be a lot more useful than I guess for you. Yeah, that's that's fair. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm too tin for a hat. So okay. Uh, I think we've gone through our all topics for today. Yeah. I think it's amazing. I think we went over time as well to talk about everything. Um, so, yeah, any last thoughts on everything happening around us? Matt? Well, are we doing predictions now? Yeah. Uh, predictions? <laughs> uh, let's see. Predictions, Bitcoin price. I think we're in a bull market rally. We'll see. Okay. Price might dump. Yeah. Okay. So, um, <laughs> any any last thoughts, predictions? I, I think for like the, the actual markets, I think we're going to start seeing like a much more of like an increase. I think a lot of market sentiments on like the positive side. So, okay. I think we're starting to see some good stuff on that side. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm predicting like a VC bounce back in Q3, Q4 of this year. Just mm-hmm. still has, still a long way back, but I think I'm fully anticipating like a cutback, yes, like a bounce back. Yes, so, everyone's a bull today. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, you guys. Uh, and I was like having this awesome show. I'm sure there's more things to come in the, in the coming weeks. So we're excited. And for our listeners, please stay tuned. Read our description. There might be ways to reach out to us and have a conversation. Thank you so much and talk to you soon. All right. Bye, everybody.